Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I had no money. Well, very, maybe a little money, but not much. And so what I would do is I would go to bus stations and buy a ticket to the next destination. Didn't matter what was going. What mattered to me was to walk down this aisle. So I'm walking down the aisle and I'm looking for an empty seat. Empty seat next to somebody who looks interesting, somebody I can trust, somebody who might trust me. Because I know once I choose that one empty seat, the conversation's gonna start and the train's gonna get moving. And before that train ride ends, before that conversation ends, I need that person to invite me home. Because <laughs> otherwise I got no roof over my head. And that is how I really learned to interview. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Cal, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Well, I owe you a big apology because this is the second time we're doing the interview and we were doing the first on my recorder and I thought I hit the button to record, but only when we got to the end did I discover that I hadn't, and the whole interview was lost. <laughs> Which we'll talk about, but I want to frame it in a, in a different way than I would have to, to talk about it technically. Or, yeah, I think I was telling you, in my mind, it was one of those moments that was like, losing a camera and you're not upset because you lost the camera because the camera can be replaced or upset because you lost the pictures and those can't be replaced. Um, but we'll get there. We got plenty more pictures. Don't worry <laughs> about it. We got albums, photo albums. Awesome. Well, I have known about your work for quite some time. I was exposed to it when you appeared on the Tim Ferriss podcast, and uh, I modeled some of my own sort of style of interviewing and asking questions based on some of the things that I heard you say in that interview. And it, it really fundamentally changed my ability to get people to tell me things that I thought they would never tell me. So I want to start by asking you, what did, where, did you, where in the world did you grow up, and what impacted where you grew up end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? It was a great question the first time and even better the second. 
And when I look back, I hadn't thought about this until you brought it up. The place that I grew up had a huge impact on my life. It was in the middle of Long Island, a town called Deer Park, and I lived on a street called 15th Street. For whatever reason, I'll never know how it came to be, but all of the homes on my block were filled with kids. Now, the street went over in one direction, went over in another direction, didn't have that number of kids. Our street had three, two, three, four, five kids in a house, and everybody came out to the street. And so every day was like a little carnival. But on top of that, all of us attracted our friends to the street. So you could walk out and the street was just filled with kids. And when the ice cream truck would come by, <laughs> that was an event. And it makes me realize now how many different types of people I had around me just in the, in, in the very short block that I lived. So it had an amazing impact on my life, I think, because it enabled me to go out and meet people because all I had to do was walk out my door and I was in the middle of it. And I think for most of my life, I always headed to the middle of it, wherever the middle of it was. Mm -hmm. What did you guys do in the streets? Were you out there just causing trouble? And how old were the kids? Was it just a wide age range? Yes, that's the other thing about it. So you might see the older realm graduating from high school, and yet there were kids who were in junior high and elementary. So it, it went up and down the ladder. And that also forced you to behave differently because you would treat younger people with respect and, and, and care that maybe your, your peers of your age, you, it might be easier just to make fun of them or be competitive with them. But when your neighbors are many years younger, you care for them in a different way. Mm -hmm. What did that whole experience teach you about human relationships and social interaction? And also, having seen that uh, dynamic as a child yourself, what impact has that had on the way that you've raised your own children? Well, well that's quite a jump from my childhood to, to raising my own kid, my my kids, because. My kids didn't come into the world till I was in my late 30s. But what I did do was move to North Carolina where my parents had retired so that my kids would grow up around their grandparents. And I think it's probably a part of that 
I can attribute to where I grew up because there was just a very familial feeling. Everybody just watched out for everybody on the street where I lived. And my wife is Brazilian, and when she came here, couldn't speak English. So growing up, for my kids to grow up around their grandparents, I gave them, I think, an extra level of security. Uh, and there, the street that they grew up on was very different from the one I grew up on. But I think the time they spent in North Carolina was time well spent. They had got a good foundation. Mm-hmm. What happened to the kids uh, from the streets you grew up on? Are you in touch with any of them? What have they gone on to do? Do you know what has how their lives have transpired? Do you know, it's, it's one of the things that I don't know that I'd call it a regret, but my life has always taken me to a new adventure. And so it's, it's hard for me to go back and keep connecting with all the people I've had adventures with. And regrettably, the early childhood friends uh, remain that in in my mind. Uh, Occasionally, we might have a phone conversation. Hey, how you doing? Mm. And occasionally, somebody's child will show up in Los Angeles where I live and they'll come to breakfast and that's a really beautiful thing. And hey, how's everybody doing? But looking back, that's the area that I could have improved on. I was always going ahead to meet somebody new and maybe I could have been looking backward as well. Mm-hmm. This is something that came up in our, our last attempt to record this, and I remember distinctly thinking about this, and it just it, uh, came to mind just now. Uh, you grew up at a time when race relations in this country were really different than they are now. What were the race relation dynamics like in your neighborhood during the period when you grew up and uh, with that group of kids in particular? Yeah, the way it was set up, there might have been... Hmm, African-American in my high school, 3%. Uh, It didn't seem to me like there was racial difficulties, but I wasn't in their shoes. And we were going through the 60s. Martin Luther King was getting shot. There were riots in Watts. There were riots in Detroit and Cleveland. And so it's it's hard because I don't think, I can't remember ever having like a direct conversation with anybody, with any African-American about it at the time. It was almost like everybody around where I was was doing okay And so we just kind of wanted to keep it that way. But you could look at the TV and know that crazy stuff was going on all over the place. I've never lived through another 10 years like that, like the 60s. And I it's 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 hard to describe like waking up every day and somebody else getting killed. I mean, now 
we see it like in school shootings. But the strange thing is, like with these school shootings, I almost feel a numbness coming over the country like, oh, again, again. Where, whereas back then, when, when Martin Luther King got shot, when Robert Kennedy got shot, it, it was just a raw, open wound uh, that everybody was dealing with every day. And you, you had riots. So many things were going on. We were also going to the moon. You had the Vietnam War going off, and you'd wake up and see a photo of a little girl running down the street, completely naked, like on, on fire, like, or feeling like she was on fire from the napalm that had been dropped. And to be a teenager at that time, or an adolescent moving into the teenage years, it just... It seemed like every day spun your head around. And that was my childhood. And that was one of the reasons why I grew up asking questions. Mm. You know, you'd look at the picture of that girl and wonder why, why, why is this happening? And then the question just kept, why are they killing John F. Kennedy? Why are they killing Robert Kennedy? Why are they killing Martin Luther King? And the whys just kept coming every day, day after day. And for me, they never stopped. Do you think that the numbness that you spoke about earlier has potentially dangerous consequences, the simplest of which being we stop asking why, and as a result of stopping to ask why we do nothing about the situation that is so terrible I can remember the day of the Columbine shootings and it was a very strange day for me because I was working at Esquire magazine back then and I was on this crazy assignment called The Perfect Man, where every month I would try to perfect myself. And the reason they called it The Perfect Man was I had so many flaws to correct. So I went to experts in every field to try and correct my flaw in that field. And one of the flaws that I had was wine. And I think a lot of people feel this way about wine. There's certainly a lot of men who don't know anything about wine and are at the head of the table when the waiter comes over with the wine list and says, what do you want? And and the man at the head of the table or the woman at the head of the table looks over and doesn't know what to order. And it's it just feels awkward. So I wanted to overcome that. I wanted to be that person sitting down when the list came to me, I would know exactly what to order. And the way that we decided to overcome this flaw was by having me be the sommelier atop windows of the world, atop the World Trade Center. This was one of the great restaurants in the world, 
at one time sold more wine than any other restaurant in the world. Uh, it had the most amazing view. You're looking down over Manhattan, and people would make dinner reservations there to get down on a knee and propose, and then the whole dining room would start applauding, and they'd bring over the champagne. And so this restaurant took me in to teach me all about wine, to teach me how to become a sommelier so that I could write a story about it for Esquire. And the, the teaching, it actually took me like two years. Learning about wine is not easy. There is a lot you got to know. I mean, this, this, the wine list of Windows of the World was really thick. Like you had to know 1,600 wines and be able to describe them and figure out by what people were ordering what wine they should get and also understand through subtle gestures what price point the person wanted to pay because at Windows in the World they never try to gouge people. That was the thing. They always wanted people to get the best bottle of wine at a cost that was right for them. And so I'm going through this process and I get invited to a wine tasting in the morning and I, I show up and it was early in the process. And one of the things about wine is you have to learn to spit the wine. If you're going to be tasting a lot of wines because you'll get drunk. So you can swirl 30 wines or 30 different glasses of wine around one and after the next, as long as you're spitting them out. And the idea is to be able to get the taste without having to swallow. Well, I hadn't figured that out yet. So I get invited to this beautiful breakfast, or no, it was lunch, I'm sorry, at Restaurant Daniel, which is one of the best restaurants in New York. And a winemaker was showcasing his wine from Bordeaux. And one glass after the next, after the next, after the next. And I'm, I can't spit. I don't know how to taste. So I'm drink, just drinking them all. And, I'm, and I, I must have had like 12 glasses of wine. And I meet the winemaker and he invites me to dinner at Windows of the World. And then I just start walking way downtown. And I'm just kind of in a loop. And I get downtown and the winemaker's there. And we just start drinking again. And... I don't know how many bottles went down, but I got home, or back to the hotel, and it just kind of went nose first into the bed. And I woke up the next morning, and I was like the last person in the world to find out about Columbine. The, the, the shooting had like, completely eluded me in a wine haze. And ever since then, Every time we have one of these shootings, it just grabs me by the lapels. And it, it's so painful that it's numbing to most people. And we just roll our eyes, say, oh, here we go again, 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 again. And we don't do anything about it. And now it's like a part of our lives as much as the metal detector at the airport. Hmm. 
as a citizen, but also as a creator of media, what do you feel your responsibility is in uh, this issue? And as a creator of media, what do you think my responsibility is when it comes to this issue? This is something I'm trying to figure out. And these microphones that we have in front of us and that little Zoom H6 recorder has changed the whole game. Because I wrote a little story for Esquire magazine about the day of Columbine. It was included in a package. The editor of Esquire had a great idea. He had, it must have been seven or eight writers, just write about the day. And actually, my piece was kind of the wild card because everybody found out like the moment it happened. And you read me, I'm kind of flowing to the, the city in a, a wine-induced haze, and it's just such a lovely day, only it's one of the most tragic days in, a, in, a, in our country's history, especially when you understand what it opened the door to. Now, to your question, what does that mean for me and for you? Well, back then, what it meant for me was I write a story about it. It appears in Esquire magazine. If they had a million readers, maybe a million people read it. And what else could I do? There was no podcasting back then. There was no iPhone back then. Now, in a little case, it's right there. It's, I would say, 12 inches by 8 inches. I have this recorder and two mics attached to it, and it literally could be a radio station that goes around the world. So I think we talked a little about this the last time, where on my podcast, one of the things I do is I ask people to send me a photo of where they listen to Big Questions, mm-hmm. my podcast, and, and they do. And they send them from all over the world. I get photos from China and Australia and Ecuador and Mexico and Ethiopia. And I realized with just this little case of equipment, whole package maybe, it certainly costs less than $1,000. I can reach the world. What do we do with that? I remember hearing that and thinking to myself, we need to seal that. So for any of you who are listening, go ahead and send us a picture from wherever you're listening, because we really would like to see where you're listening from. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing because yeah. you feel connected. And I, I didn't even ask people to send me pictures of them. I just said, show me your neighborhood. And some people send me individual photos. But you realize how connected we are. And not only that, and this gets to the essence of your question, people are listening to our voices, many of them through those earbuds. That has wrapped up all the noise from the outside, and it's not letting it come in. It's only letting our voices come in. And when I think of the power that that has 
for us to be speaking and this message to be coming directly into somebody's ear. I don't know that's ever happened before. I mean, in radio, the radio is at a distance. This is right inside the ear. So we have tremendous power. Podcasters have tremendous power. Maybe powers that we've never seen before. So your question's a great one because I'm trying to figure that out. What can be done about all these problems when you do have the possibility of reaching people who can make a difference? Mm-hmm. Got to step up, yeah. but how? It's interesting. Um, one of the, the subjects that caught my attention recently after reading probably a dozen books of it was the, the criminal justice system. And the more I read, the more I thought we really should do something about this. And my first thought was, well, the first thing we could do is we could raise awareness about this by talking to people who are part of this system or work on it in some way at all. I felt that I had a not only an opportunity, but a responsibility with somebody who has a platform to be able to use what I've built to raise awareness that potentially could lead to social change. That's important. I'm with you. So the question then becomes, all right, do you start a completely different podcast just on the criminal justice system? And you make that a focus. And so that anybody who's interested in it can go there once a week, twice a week and find out what's happening. And you make calls to action and other people can make calls to action and the problems can be explained. And here's the other beauty about podcasting. Every, so many of the other avenues of media are getting tapered down and so that you open a magazine and now the story is 300 words long where it used to be 3,000. And so they, they can't make detailed points. They can just get at the essence of the subject and then they're done. TV, you don't see any long programming revolve, revolving around like a single issue like that that's repeated, that people can stay on. So... Podcasters can go for a couple of hours, three hours, if you've got an audience that's interested. This this medium is on the cusp of making changes that I don't think anybody anticipated. I was just with uh, Jocko Willink, who's got a very popular podcast, and he's only been doing it for a couple of years. And I, I looked on his Wikipedia page and it said, uh, like, Jocko Willick, American podcaster, author, and former Navy SEAL. And you're thinking, like, Jocko, if 10 years ago I would have said your biography would have read like that, he would not even know what a podcaster was. So this, this is an opening for us. And we got to use it wisely. Yeah. I want to go back to uh, your initial moment when you realized that there was this power to asking questions. And I know this story is on your about page. You wrote a letter to the president of the United States. Uh, 
and I want you to tell me that story. Sure. So this goes back to November 1963, and I am, I just turned seven the week before, and I'm in a second grade class, and the teacher, Miss Jaffe, leaves the room for a minute or two and comes back in a different person. I mean, the, the blood had just drained from her face. It, incredibly pale. And she starts talking in a voice so calm that it was a little frightening. And she tells us that President Kennedy has just been shot. Well, everybody in the school is sent home and we run straight to the television where we learn that the president has been assassinated and later on we hear that the vice president Lyndon B. Johnson is now the president and that night my parents called me over to the kitchen table because they realized that this was really the first time I had ever confronted death and so they wanted me to sleep well. So they call me over and say, Cal, look, we just want you to know this has happened before in our country's history. Our system is designed in this situation to move forward. And that's why Lyndon B. Johnson's the new president. When you wake up tomorrow, you're gonna have breakfast just like you normally do. You're gonna go out and play. And over time, everything's gonna return to normal. So tonight, you just go to sleep and you don't have to worry about anything. And so they go to talk to my younger brother and I'm sitting at this kitchen table and I'm thinking, I'm trying to wrap my head around everything I've seen in the whole day. And this name, Lyndon B. Johnson, this keeps reverberating in my head. And a big part of it was the middle initial because when I was a kid, the only people that I ever heard with middle initials were presidents. So I thought, if you, if you were born with a middle initial, <laughs> like, you got to be the president. And here's Lyndon B. Johnson. He's now the president. And I'm thinking, you know, this guy, he probably wanted to be the president. Is he happy that he's the president? Is he sad because he's only the president because of the assassination? Or maybe he's scared that they're gonna try and kill him too. So I'm sitting there trying to figure out what, what's going through this guy's head. And I can't, I can't, I can't figure it out. So I picked up pencil, piece of paper, and I just start writing. Dear President Johnson, how does it feel? And I run through the possible scenarios in my head. Are you happy? Are you sad? Are you scared? I wish him well. And I fold this piece of paper in thirds, drop it in an envelope, and address it to Lyndon B. Johnson, the White House. Back then you had a lick of stamp. They didn't have the stick-ons. Put it in the corner put my address in the top left-hand corner, didn't tell anybody. 
it wasn't like I had any plans for this. I was just curious, what is this guy feeling like? And the next day I went out to play and I dropped the letter in the mailbox. Well, it took a while before everything returned to normal. The country was in crisis for a, a while, especially since the person they suspected of killing the president was shot on television. It might have been the next day or two. And so it's all anybody's talking about. We got the funeral. But life slowly returns to normal. And after a while, I forget all about the letter. Well, about six months later, my mom comes racing up the apartment, or racing up to the apartment, and she's got this letter in her right hand, and it's a letter from the White House to me. And it was a very interesting letter because it was not written to a second grader, even though anybody who read the letter could have seen the... I don't even think that I could write cursive yet then. I was, must have been writing in print. Uh, but the letter had this air of respect that translated... I'll never forget the second sentence began... In answer to your query, and I had no idea what a query was, but I soon found out by the way everybody was running into the house to see the letter from the president, to hold the letter from the president, the principal in the school wanted to see it, that the smallest kid in his class was suddenly like a big man. And that was the moment that I understood how a good question could get you to the most powerful places on earth. And that question has guided me for the rest of my life. So one more question about this period uh, in history in particular. So last time we were talking, we spoke about media and the media environment in the 60s versus the media environment now where you have uh, a plethora of sources of information. How do you think about what the truth means in today's media landscape when you compare it to the media landscape of the era in which you grew up in, particularly because you've been in the media landscape your whole life? And it, it's, it's a great question, and it's got a very specific answer. Because we had three networks CBS, NBC, and ABC. And then I grew up in New York, so we had uh, Channel 11, Channel 5, which were local New York stations and a public station. But back then, you had one man. His name was Walter Cronkite. And he was sort of like everybody's grandpa. And he came on the news every night, mustache, grade, and told us what was happening in the world. And when Walter Cronkite said it, you knew it was the facts. Even if he didn't know it was the facts, 
We believed it was a fax. And I mean, he was the person on the air who told most of America that President Kennedy was assassinated. I mean, news was coming in from Texas, but it was he who confirmed it. He was the one who was on the air when we landed on the moon. And I later interviewed him about it, and he said that he thought he would have a more creative response, but it was something like, oh, wow. (laughs) Uh, Which basically is what connected him to everybody. Everybody knew that if Walter Cronkite said it, you could trust it. And he was a guy from middle America, and he's very straightforward and direct. And he was also the guy who literally turned the public perception of the Vietnam War around because he went himself. He started to see that this it, it wasn't going anywhere good. It didn't seem to have any reason for being. And he basically came back and questioned it. And when the president, when President Johnson saw that, basically he said something to the effect of, if I've lost Cronkite, I've lost middle America. And at that point, basically his presidency dissolved. And that was the power of this one trusted man. Now, the other networks, they had people on that you could turn to and and trust, but Walter Cronkite Cronkite was the centerpiece of trust in America. We don't have that now. Uh, If I go to listen to the news, what I hear on CNN is going to be different from what I hear on Fox, and that's going to be different from what I hear on MSNBC, uh, and you've got still got CBS and NBC and ABC, but now it's just uh, it's almost it's it's too much coming at you that you then have to kind of decipher. And, and so what you've got is people who have found the place that they're comfortable and they're going to get what they want to hear. Now, this is, this is really crucial. And I'm going to tell you, I, I've got a podcast coming out this week. It'll be out by the time this is out. It's about sex doll robots. Now, why this would apply to the news, you would, How? Why? There's very good reasons why this applies. These sex doll robots are being made specifically to the look and measurements, custom made to what the buyers want. But on top of that, they're being programmed by artificial intelligence to say exactly what the buyers want to the point where if the buyer is somebody who likes Shakespeare, the doll can be programmed to talk about Shakespeare for like an expert for 12 hours straight and, and can engage the buyer in an awesome conversation. All right. So where's the connection? Because 
what's happening is we're at the point of just buying only what we want to hear. We're not going to hear the other side if we can buy only what we want to hear. And so it's an easy jump from, uh, I listen to Fox, Fox My Station, my channel, and that's what I believe. Easy jump to coming home and having the doll tell you the news of that day in just the language you want to hear it. That's where we're going. It's very clear. And so how are we going to stay together as a nation when everybody's getting different information? There's just no more Walter Cronkite. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com 
slash host. What are the lessons from history, uh, given that you've had such a, a sort of expansive view into this, that we're likely to repeat based on where we're at and what you're seeing? I don't think there's any repetition for what we're in right now. <laughs> uh, because of the technology, when you throw artificial intelligence into the mix, when you throw just the whole internet into the mix, so everybody can go to their little spot. So this is the flip side of now we have these microphones in front of us and we could reach out to the world. Now they couldn't hear us before, but because they're listening to us, they're not listening to one person who was telling everybody what was going on. I think in America, the last of that would be like Larry King, Oprah Winfrey, where masses of people went to them and believed what they were saying. Now, there are millions of people who can go to CNN and not believe it. They can go to Fox and not believe it. They can go to MSNBC and not believe it. And so I don't know how we're going to work out of that because it's one thing to have difference of opinion. It's another to have completely different sets of facts. It's a, it's, it's a little scary. Well, let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, after you left your hometown, where did you go and what did you do? I went to the University of Missouri Journalism School and did me proud. I knew from the time I was seven that I was going to ask questions. I knew I was going to be a writer. I thought at the time that I would be a newspaper columnist because back then, that was an amazing job. Now, now I don't know how many people, certainly young people, they may not even pick up the paper. But, but back then, if you want to know what was going on, you went to the newspaper. And the people who wrote the columns were the people who got read every day. And if you were the sports columnist, you were the king or the mayor of your city. Everybody looked to you. You would show up in a restaurant or a bar and get the best seat in the house. That's what I wanted to do. And that's what I did for a couple of years. And then I kind of looked around and thought, you know, if I don't move, I'm going to be doing the same thing in 50 years. And so I just got in a car and I drove to New York where this amazing sports magazine was getting started up. It was called Inside Sports, which was started to compete with Sports Illustrated back when Sports Illustrated was a major, major magazine. People can't understand it now, but back then, if an athlete was on the cover of Sports Illustrated, everybody in the country knew it. In fact, there was what was called the Sports Illustrated Jinx, 
where after a few athletes were on it, they did badly in the championship game, and then nobody wanted to be on the cover. But it was one of the most successful magazines of all time at that point. And this magazine, Inside Sports, came from a competitor and competing company, and it was designed to go after Sports Illustrated. And it was an amazing place to be a young writer because the editor was a guy named Johnny Walsh, who also later became known for starting Sports Center on ESPN. He was a visionary head of his time. And he was bringing in writers like Hunter S. Thompson, who, if you're young, you may never have heard about him, but he was this gonzo journalist, an amazing writer, uh, did remarkable stories for Rolling Stone, which you don't hear about much anymore. Uh, they made movies at him. Johnny, Johnny Depp uh, acted as Hunter Thompson in the, in the film. And he would show up at the bar, like after I'd come out of work. And David Halberstam, who won a Pulitzer Prize, would be there. And I'd be getting to meet all these people. I'm 22, 23 years old. And so it was the best place to be a young writer. And then this magazine basically just went out of business. And it was like a stunning blow because it wasn't a job. It, every day was an event. And here I am going off to Pittsburgh to interview the Steelers while they go after their Super Bowl ring. And I, I was just in on it, everything. And all of a sudden, it's just not there anymore. So... Right then, I didn't know what to do, and I called up my parents and I said, Mom, I think I'm gonna take a little time off to travel. And she said, oh, that's wonderful. And when she said it, little did she know that, oh, for her, it wasn't gonna be so wonderful because I wasn't coming back for about 10 years. Once I started traveling, I was gone, and it was an amazing trip that taught me a whole new way to interview. And there's a reason for that that boils down to four words. I had no money. Well, very maybe a little money, but not much. And so what I would do is I would go to bus stations and buy a ticket to the next destination. Didn't matter what was going. What mattered to me was to walk down this aisle. So I'm walking down the aisle and I'm looking for an empty seat. Empty seat next to somebody who looks interesting, somebody I can trust, somebody who might trust me. Because I know once I choose that one empty seat, the conversation's gonna start, and the train's gonna get moving, and before that train ride ends, before that conversation ends, I need that person to invite me home. Because otherwise, I got no roof over my head. And that is how I really learned to interview. That's how I learned to listen. Because you got to remember, a lot of these conversations, we're, we're speaking two languages. I didn't understand 
what somebody's speaking in Romanian or Hungarian, and they don't understand English for the most part. I mean, often there were young kids that were learning and they would be attracted over. So it became this giant game of charades that always or very often led to somebody's home and they would call over the neighbors and they would call their friends and family and it would set off a party. That would set off a three-day party and then all the new people that had just gotten to, met me, to meet me would invite me to their homes or to visit their relatives in places where they knew I was going. And so that's how the trip set off. And it was really addictive because every day I'm waking up, I have no idea what's going to happen to me. Not a clue. It's the greatest feeling in the world. And I'm just seeing what's going to go down. Who am I going to meet? What's going to happen to me today? And on and on it went. I, I went back home to see my folks and my, my friends. Occasionally the money got really low and I would do a magazine piece or two and then put some money in my pocket and then head out again. And I did this for years and years and years. And that is where I learned how to interview in a way that overlapped with what I did for Esquire when I interviewed Mikhail Gorbachev and Muhammad Ali and Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos and Robert De Niro and Al Pacino because I am basically using the same style that I used on these buses and trains in conversations with some of the most powerful, talented and compelling people on earth. And it made them comfortable, they opened up, and in this one column, it was called What I've Learned, you were able to see them in their voice in, their, in, a, in a very new way. And it never would have happened if I would have, after Inside Sports Folded, if I had just taken a job at another magazine and kept asking questions designed for a print article in a magazine. You mentioned earlier uh, in our conversation that your wife didn't speak English when she got here. How did you guys meet? So what happened is I'm going around the world for about 10 years and I get a call when I'm in visiting a friend in Bolivia. And the call is from the Washington Post Sunday magazine. And they say, Cal, we're doing a story about the best beaches in the world. And we know you've been to Brazil and you love Brazil. Is there a one beach in Brazil that you would like to write about? And I said, well, you know what? There is, there is a beach I heard about. I've never been there. But nah, 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 you wouldn't like it. And they said, well, what do you mean we wouldn't like it? It's like too far away. You're going to want tourists to go there. Tourists can't get there. And the guy said, well, tell me a little about it. And I said, well, it's called Jericoacoara. And it's basically on the equator or close. And it's from a different time zone. 
And when I mean time zone, I mean like from a different century. I, I was told to get there. You had to go by crude sailing vessel and mule back. You, like money was worthless there. You took a sack of rice on your shoulder to barter with the fishermen when you got there uh, so that they'd feed you and put up a hammock for you in front of their shacks. And I must have made it sound really exotic to the editor. And he said, you know what, why don't you just go and then call us back. So I go to the nearest city, it's called Fortaleza. And as luck would have it, just as I arrive, I find out the first travel agency with trips to Jericoacoara has opened. And the first trip leaves Friday night at midnight. Don't need a mule, no crude sailing vessels. A bus is going to take us most of the way. And they'll have dune buggies there to take us over these sand dunes. And this beach is so memorable because it's like got the most, it's got the beautiful sand dunes of the Sahara set alongside crystalline waters of the Caribbean. And I get a ticket for this bus that's leaving midnight on Friday night. I get one of the last tickets. So I'm happy. I got a few days to wait. And little do I know that as Friday morning comes around, a call comes in to the travel agency from a woman in Brazil who says, I'd like a ticket to Jericoacoara. And the guy says, I'm sorry, we're out. Uh, this is our first trip completely sold out and she said but but I gotta go and he says well the next trip's in two weeks she said no 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 I, I have to be going tonight but there's no seats well if somebody cancels can I get that seat sure the guy says give me your number I'll call you right back if somebody cancels so they hang up and when an hour later on the hour, woman calls. Any, any seats? No. Hang up. Hour after that, she calls back again. Anybody cancel? No. Hour after that, any seats? No. Hour after that, anybody cancel? No. On and on, this goes till like 10 o'clock at night. And finally, she calls and says, Any seats? Any cancellations? And the guy says, nah, nah, look, everybody wants to go to Jericoacoara. It's the first time. But you know what? I can tell how much you want to go. So how about this? For half price, you can stand in the aisle. Great, she says. So around midnight at this bus station, it's very dark, and everybody boards this bus to go to Jericoacoara, I'm sitting in the aisle, middle of the bus, and just after 12, right before the doors close, I see this silhouette coming up the steps and starting to walk down the aisle. And this silhouette just walks and walks and reaches me. Can't really see me in the darkness and I can't see her, but she stops right next to me. And I look up and I see this silhouette and like, I know, like, 
There she is. That is her. That's the woman I'm going to marry. And so I look it up at her in the darkness and I say, uh, would you like my seat? And she says, no, and turns away. And that was how I met the woman who is now my wife of 26 years. Wow. <laughs> so the experience that you've had traveling the, the world for these 10 years, it, it raises a, a number of different questions for me, both about education and about careers. Uh, one, what impact has it had on the way that you're educating your own children and the kinds of things that you're encouraging them to do career-wise? And what would you tell young people? And the reason that, that I'm asking this question is because I don't know how close we are in age, but when I was at Berkeley, there was a very sort of set criteria by which you made decisions about your career. There were maybe four career paths that you could go down. And this, it turns out, is pretty standard at elite institutions. I only know because I've just read a book called The Miseducation of the American Elite. Uh, <laughs> and the author is going to be a guest on Unmistakable Creative soon. Uh, and I remember reading that book and I, I felt that I was literally reading my own story, but it was kind of a given that you would either become a doctor, a lawyer, or you would go to grad school or go to business school. But it was a very sort of myopic view in terms of what was possible with your life. So I guess one, what impact has this had on the way that you're raising your kids? How do you think about our education system and uh, how it would facilitate something like this? And what would you tell young people who are listening to this who are at the start of their careers? Well, my own kids, <laughs> my own kids are the type of kids where if one of their friends comes in the house and I'll start to engage them into a conversation, I say, stop interviewing him, Dan. Stop it. Stop. So it goes without saying that whatever advice I might try and pass out, is is lost it's sort of like the best way i could describe it is that mark twain quote goes something like when i was 14 my dad was such an idiot it's amazing how smart he got by the time i was 22. <laughs> i can relate <laughs> and and so i've been through that with uh with a few of them and it's the odd thing to me, and my two oldest are both going to be graduating from college within the next year and a half. And they're both like political science majors. One may be transferring over to history, but I'm like, political science? Why would anybody go into political science? Like, what, what does that do? What, what does it mean? I never... Like, I never would understand it. Now, I guess if you're going to be a lawyer, okay. And maybe one of them will be a lawyer. I just, that's, that's something that I wonder what's tangible about it. Now, when I went to school, I went to journalism school. I knew I was going to be a journalist. It like, made concrete sense. I knew, and I was right, that... When I graduated that school, 
I was going to get a job and I got a great job. And I got a great job because the newspapers around the country would come to the University of Missouri and they would interview everybody and the professors would tell them who are the best people. And for the most part, the best people got selected by the best papers. And then as the lesser papers came in, as some of the other people got, got snapped up. And I, I say other people, and that's really a, a terrible way of saying it because I'm sure there were great lifelong journalists who were among them. Uh, but at the time, I guess if you're very competitive and in that place, you wanted to go to the best paper and get a chance to try and write your own column. So I guess I kind of saw things as if you go down this road, you're going to stop in the place that you want to stop at. Where I, I find like many people can get English degrees and I'm just, I think it's great to be able to do all that reading but like, what would you do with it? I don't know. If I was advising somebody now, I would say if you were somebody like me who was curious, who couldn't go into the newspapers, but you want to know something, if, if I was 17 now, I could start my own podcast. All I need are these two mics, these two cords, and that Zoom H6 recorder. So it's completely different. And if, it, if that was the case, what I would do is I would be a psychology major. I would try to understand the human brain uh, because that would give me insights into how people behave. I would try to go to college and learn like four languages. And I would be educated to communicate across various technologies. Because if I had though that underpinning of education, I could do a lot of stuff. I could go and work as a behavioral psychologist for a big com company if I wanted like a job that was really sure. I could set up my own podcast and try and make it on my own. I could travel abroad and use my facility with languages to work for a company or transmit content or news. I, I would, somebody like me would be in the best position with that kind of education. And I would have sprinkled that in with reading the great books and watching the great movies. Uh, I was never a big math guy. So I don't know how that would apply to me. And everybody's just got to look at what's, what's their passion? What are they good at? So if you want to communicate, I would suggest psychology to give you some foundation and also a good shot at a corporate job if that's what you wanted. And even if you want to write a novel or do some kind of creative work, it allows you to have a, a corporate job to support yourself while you fulfill your creative side. Hmm. 
One of the things you talked about is uh, you've been in the fortunate position to interview some of the most powerful and successful and well-known people in the world. What do you think would surprise people uh, who've not had a chance to talk to these people about those people? And what perceptions do you think they have based on what they've consumed and what they've read about these people? Well, I would say that what tends to happen is people get labeled and people are generally always much deeper and bigger than a label. And when you sit down with them and start asking them questions, you find out that somebody who's been labeled in a business sense has an incredible relationship with their kids that nobody knows about. Or, I mean, even to give you an example, like a political example that people might understand, even if you weren't around in 1979, that's when uh, the Shah of Iran was overthrown. The Ayatollah Khomeini came in and 50, 150 American hostages were taken from the embassy. And it's very hard for people to recall what that was like, this sense of frustration among Americans. There are a lot of people just saying, like, bomb them, nuke them. Like, but what about the hostages? And, and there's a lot of anger because not only did they take them hostage, but they kind of paraded them with blindfolds on. So every, we were all seeing these images. And I remember afterward interviewing President Carter, and this was after he was a president, and he tried a rescue mission that went really badly. Helicopters were sent in, there were like sandstorms, they crashed, and uh, everything was just getting worse and worse and worse and worse, and which only made people get more and more infuriated and say, just like bomb them, take out the city. And I asked President Carter, like what it was that kept him so restrained uh, because people in America were mad at him for not doing anything. And he was explaining this dinnertime conversation with his daughter, who was asking the same point. I guess she was at school and hearing this same background. And he said to her, in Tehran, there are people sitting at the dinner table, just like we are right now, eating their dinner that had nothing to do with this. And like, I'm not going to drop a bomb on them. And, you know, he, he made a compelling case. And he was basically saying how a family conversation like that could indicate what he thought was a good policy. Now, it's, it was very, I'm thinking back, 
what happened was the Iranians were out to humiliate Carter and they wouldn't return the hostages and then Carter lost in a landslide and Ronald Reagan came in and everybody thought, okay, day one when Reagan comes in, we don't know what's going to happen, but this is not going to be good for the Iranians. And before Reagan even came in, uh, the Iranians agreed to let the hostages go. And so you, there was a, a lesson that the American public got out of that in quote-unquote Amer American strength. And, and Carter was seen as a very weak president because of that. And Reagan was seen as a strong one. And so, like, you don't know where these decisions come from. But when I think of him saying how proud he was that at the end of his presidency, basically, he had not killed anybody, I know that that came from a place of that table conversation. And we don't, we don't get to hear stories like that. I, I don't think. So it's interesting, as, I, as I'm talking to you and um, listening to our conversation, I feel like I'm there in these moments in history. I feel like I'm literally getting an entire history lesson. And the sense I'm getting is that there is a desire and a drive towards mastery for your craft. And I wonder where that comes from and how you've improved it over time. Well, part of it is figuring out a frame for your art. Yeah. Now, for me, working 20 years at Esquire, writing this column called What I've Learned, where I got a chance to spend an hour and a half with icons who've shaped world history, and then I had to go back and take their words and boil them down to the 900 words of their wisdom that basically told the public who they really are. That became my frame. And so the more I did it, the better I got at transmitting the essence of these people. But if I hadn't had that frame, it would have been much more difficult for me. And so whatever you do, I think it's important to have a frame like this podcast. If you're doing it every week, it's an hour and a half. You have that frame. And over time, your listeners are going to know these are the times of guests, types of guests that you get. And I, I'm still thinking a lot of, about that. Like, what kind of frame do I want my podcast to have? Should there be another podcast that is just like you were talking about how criminal justice is important to you? Maybe there's some, an issue to me that's really important that I should narrowly focus in on. And this is all possible because of these two little mics on a stand with a couple of cords and this Zoom H6, it's phenomenal that somebody in Australia, as well as Stockholm, as well as Quito, 
I mean, wherever you look on the globe, people can be tuning into this. And so I take that really seriously. And now I'm thinking, okay, what, what is to be done with this? Maybe everything that I have done up to this point was just to prepare me for the power that I'll have through this microphone. Wow. Uh, well, I want to start uh, moving towards the end of this, and I know that you have breakfast with Larry King every day, and I wonder how that started and how it, why it's continued. What happened is I interviewed Larry for that column, What I've Learned in Esquire, and we immediately hit it off, and the story came out, and he loved it as did a lot of people. There was a lot of humor in it, and not many people see Larry through the prism of humor because they saw him on the CNN show and he would be asking very short, straightforward questions to people, and he put the spotlight on them. And this story went over very well, and years later, a literary agent who represented both Larry and I and didn't realize we had that overlap. This casually mentioned to me, you know, Larry King's writing a book. And I said, oh, man, I can write the proposal right now. I've got all my notes for the, from the interview that I did years ago. And he said, let me call Larry. And Larry remembered me. And so we got together and I wrote this book proposal and it was sold. And then I had to come out and write the book. He was, I was living in North Carolina. He was living in Beverly Hills. And he said, show up at Nate Niles Deli at about 845. And he hung there with his childhood friends from Brooklyn. And I showed up the table and I immediately like fit in. I was a generation younger than everybody, but it immediately worked. And over the next eight or nine months, we worked on the book after breakfast every day. And then the book came out. And by that point, I was an everyday fixture at breakfast and it never ended. And a lot of the people who were at the table have passed on. Some have gotten strokes and so the table has evolved. Now I'm an old timer at the table. And now I bring in younger people to fill it out. And by all means, next time you're up in LA, you let me know, you come join us for breakfast. I will definitely take you up on that. You got a seat at the table. And the amazing thing to me, when I think back on all this, I really saw myself as a writer. And what happened over 10 years of Larry taking me to his show and seating me, like literally right next to him, but you, because of the camera angle, you don't see it. But I'm watching him interview night after night after night, and I'm hearing him at breakfast 
morning after morning after morning. And then sometimes we would have lunch. And when he retired and did his comedy show, I went to the comedy show and saw that. And I didn't realize that whatever was coming through his voice was like in the air and that I was breathing it in. And then years later, when I went, I was asked to do a speech on a cruise ship. And I go up to do this speech. All of a sudden, it's like Larry came out. I, it's very hard to explain, but all of a sudden I could speak. It was just from taking it in, taking it in, taking it in. And now, oh, okay. Yeah, I can do this. And that has transferred over to the podcast. I had no idea. But so much of this is just being able to observe an icon, like in my 50s, when you're very conscious. It really was an amazing education. It still is. Having been uh, up close and personal to so many iconic figures in our culture and having lived multiple decades, has your definition of success and have your values and have the things that matter to you changed with age? Well, I think for me, it's always been about the story. And I just did a one-minute Instagram piece yesterday. And I got the footage that had been shot. And music had been set to it. And it wasn't the right music. And I called somebody who writes music. And I said, hey, can you, can you write something for this? And like a couple of hours later, it was done. And it worked. And so I think I care just as much about getting it right in these new formats that I did when I was really carefully carving away at the words and just staring at the words for hour after hour after hour, almost like a sculptor. that was very conscious that one wrong hit could destroy the whole piece. And so it's it's always been about telling the story for me. I think just telling the story right is, for me, that's success. And maybe... Well, obviously, raising good kids, that's success. Having a great marriage, that's success. Being able to care for parents, uh, and that, that's something uh, I would have liked. I was a few thousand miles away from my mom uh, when... She spent her final days with cancer. That's something, if, if I had any regrets, it would be that I 
could have spent more time with her at the very end. But she was the type of person who didn't want to be seen by her kids or in positioning her kids. So it's hard to know. Maybe she was happy that I wasn't with her all the time. But those are the things that I think really register success. And it's the moments, the, the little moments that you have where you know, oh, that speech made people stand and applaud. That was successful. So I think it's just a lot of adding a lot of little things up and making making sure your family's taken care of and you're doing what you love. If you've got that covered, you're in pretty good shape. Wow. Uh, well, this has been uh, a real gift. Uh, I have to say, probably one of my favorite interviews in the 700 plus that I've done. Wow. That's amazing. I, uh, I so enjoy talking to you. And I really look forward to seeing you at Larry King's breakfast table. And you have a great style, very relaxing. Thanks. So I have one last question for you. Sure. Is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Well, it's kind of like when you hear Bob Dylan's voice. It can, you know, it's Bob Dylan. When you hear Michael Jackson's voice, you know, that's Michael Jackson. And there are certain people who just have gifts that are unmistakably theirs. Now, maybe the world doesn't know it. Maybe it's a mom whose children know it. And this mother will do something maybe prepare a meal a certain way and it's unmistakable unmistakably mama's waffles so it's a it's something that i think is as unique as a fingerprint your fingerprint that you do this special and as i'm saying you don't have to be known as well as nelson mandela you can be unmistakable to one person, and, and that may be enough. But you should be un everybody should be unmistakable in some way. If you're not unmistakable, then there's probably some kind of mistake going on. Because even, even with people who have tremendous problems, they still have their own unique fingerprint. And that's a, that's a great thing. And everybody should remember that. It's just where they place it. Well, I think that makes a really fitting and poetic end to our conversation. Where can people find out more about you and everything that you're up to? So the podcast is called Big Questions with Cal Fussman. 
and that's the best place to reach me right now. Uh, you can also Google Cal Fussman and uh, Esquire, and a lot of the interviews under the umbrella of what I've learned will come up. Uh, there's books that I've written. But, but right now, it's for me, this podcast is a new adventure. And where, you know, I may have like 30 or 40 years at this. It's something, there may, getting back to what you're asking, you know, there's the potential to help a lot of people make a lot of changes for the better and that's what I want to use this time for and that's what I'm going to use this time for I just lost about 25 pounds started to obstacle race completely revamped my diet uh, mostly plant based very healthy no processed foods uh, because I, I really want to have as much time to do as much good as I can going forward. Where it's going to take me, I don't know, but I'm glad to have you on the adventure. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that, and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.